Yeah, it's been a tough week for me. Most of the week I spent having gastric flu. Uh, so if I wasn't sleeping, I was, you know, the other thing. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it simple today. Uh, I'm just going to ask one question. Uh, one question of this text, which I think uh, Zephaniah 3, uh, this little book of Zephaniah, answers in a most unique and profound way. And the question is, does God care? It's a question that I think few of us would be bold enough to you know, actually give voice to. Uh, but I think it's a question that, you know, even if not articulated, it's a question we sometimes feel. You know, does God care when we look at the evil and suffering that is around the world? Does God care about what's happening to these people? Does God care about how the world is going? Or if we, if we narrow into the church, we see all that's happening in the church. Does God care? You know, there are so many of our friends who go to these so-called churches that are led by false shepherds. You know, people who purport to stand there and preach from the Word of God, stand there in the name of Christ, but who are actually leading people astray. So many that I know being led astray. Does God care? Does God care that so many places, so many churches, they are no different from the world. Christians being so alike the world that there's hardly any distinction. It's just what they do on a Sunday morning that's different. But you know, so does God care that all these things are happening? So like I said, Zephaniah in its own way provides a profound and unique answer to that question. And I, I think we need God's help to hear uh, the answer from Zephaniah. So let's, let's ask him to help us hear this word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this little book that we have and the answers that it gives to the questions that we just raised. Father, we pray for grace to hear this word uh, that we may know your truth, that we may once and for all hear uh, the answer to that question and help, help that answer to forever change our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Zephaniah's answer can be you know, seen in three points, which is there in your outline. Condemnation, purity, rejoicing. So firstly, condemnation, verses 1 to 8. And, and there has been plenty of that, right? The first two chapters, there's been plenty of condemnation. And as we come into the beginning of chapter 3, that the tone of condemnation continues. Now, if you remember, at the end of chapter 2, God was condemning the nation of Assyria. And he was focusing specifically to the capital, Nineveh. Now, if I just read the end of chapter 2, talking about Nineveh, it says, This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one, and there is none besides me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. And then chapter 3, now remember, when Zephaniah first wrote, there weren't any chapter divisions. So it just flows on into chapter 3, Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled, 
She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Now you see the way that Zephaniah has written. It is almost as if, as we go into chapter 3, you might think he's still talking about Nineveh. Like, because Nineveh is that oppressive city. Nineveh is that, that city that, that obeys no one, accepts no correction. But then, when Zephaniah says, she does not trust in the Lord, she does not draw near to her God, then the Lord there is not, you know, just, it's a capital L-O-R-D which stands for Yahweh. Of course, Nineveh would not draw near to, to, to Yahweh. So, as, it, as we go into chapter 3, it sounds as if we are talking about Nineveh, but it soon becomes clear that Zephaniah is referring to Jerusalem. Now, I think the reason why he does this is because he wants to show that Jerusalem, God's city, has become almost indistinguishable from Nineveh. And like Nineveh, will suffer God's condemnation. And in verse 3 and 4, God focuses his condemnation on the leaders. Verse 3, her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves. Now, what's the point about them being lions and wolves? Well, end of verse 3, who leave nothing for the morning. Right, these, these leaders are so ravenous. They, 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 they eat at God's people. And the picture is that they leave nothing. Now, even the bone is, is, is licked dry. Verse 4, her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. You know, the prophets who are treacherous, I mean, when they were prophesying, I'm sure the people didn't think, yeah, that's such a treacherous message. No, they, they are treacherous because they are not saying what they should have been saying from God's word. They were preaching a message that the people wanted to hear. They were not preaching a message that God wanted them to preach. And so in that way, they show themselves to be treacherous. And her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. So God cares. God cares that his people are becoming indistinguishable from, from the world and is going to bring condemnation on them. God cares about how God's leaders are doing. And when they are not following his way, uh, leading according to his, his principles, he is going to come in judgment on them. God cares. And I think as a church, where this year we celebrate Andrew and Cheryl being with us for 10 years, it's a great reminder from this passage that, you know, what a blessing God has given us to have faithful leaders. And so as a church, we must be thankful to God that he has, uh, in grace and mercy, uh, given us such a, a wonderful senior pastor and uh, supportive wife. And as well, the other elders that are in our midst, what a blessing that we have elders who are seeking to follow hard after God, seeking to do His will, and not, and not fearing men and doing uh, what the world wants. But I want to say a word to those of you who are up-and-coming leaders. You know, we are thankful that this church, there are people who uh, show potential for leadership and, 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 and do aspire to leadership. Why do you want to lead? 
if you do aspire to leadership, why do you want to lead? The, the warning in Zephaniah 3 warns us against wanting to lead for, for anything that's for our own self-interest. Because that's, that's what these leaders of Jerusalem are being condemned for. They were in it for themselves. They were going about it for their own good. And God comes and brings judgment against them. Now, it's very clear that if we are to lead, we are to lead because out of a love for God. We are to lead out of a love for people. And this point was brought home uh, very strongly to me last week. I was uh, on the train on my way to NTU. And on the way there, I was preparing uh, on my phone the Bible study for Zephaniah chapter 2 for the youth. And on the way there, I was thinking about it, you know, and I was preparing, and I, I wrote down four lines, okay, on my on my phone, and I was so happy because you know Zephaniah two is not the easiest chapter in the world to teach youth, but wow, with four lines, that's it, you know, I I I managed to think of a way to 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 engage them and to apply it home strongly, and I, yes, you know, I'm done, finished preparation, and the NTU. I, I met my student, and the first thing he told me was how on Sunday, after service, he was going uh, in a deacon's car, going to a meeting. And on the way there, they met this youth that used to go to their church. And so the deacon stopped the car, wind down the window, and said, Hey, where have you been? Haven't seen you for a while. And then the youth said, Oh, I've left the church. And by that he meant he has left the church. It's not that he's gone to a different church, he's just left. You know, he's no longer going to church. And my student was just telling me, you know, just the way he said it. It's almost as if he said, oh, oh, oh yeah, I changed my phone. You know, it was as, as trivial as that. And, and my, my student was just telling me, that, you know, the whole car, they were just shocked at the way he said it. And so I said to my student, you know, don't, 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 just, don't just focus on that one youth. Because this student of mine comes from a church that's you know, very traditional. Sometimes they, they err on the side of being too traditional. So I wanted to say, you know, that student, that, that youth, represents you know, a whole number of people that are in your church who, if, if God doesn't do anything, in a few years' time, they will be just like this youth. They will leave the church. Because I wanted to say to him, you know, your, your, your church errs in this way. And you need to, to not just hold on to the traditional things. You need to really teach them the Bible. And so I said to him, okay, you know, let's, let's, let's pray for your youth. And so we started praying. And as he prayed, which was a short prayer, it felt like a hundred things was going through my mind. Because I thought back to the Bible study I had just prepared on the train. And I thought, yes, finish preparing. Job done. But I thought, no, no, it, that's not job done. And so after my, my, my student finished praying, I said, hey, as you were praying, I was just thinking about so many things. I was thinking about how I, I had finished the Bible study and I thought, you know, I had, fi- I had finished the job. And I, I thought that was it. And I said, what a mistake to think just because I come out with a good Bible study, come out with a good question, come out with a good application, that that's it. What a mistake. Where's the persevering in prayer out of love for individuals that I'm going to teach? And, and I mean, as... As I, was, as I was talking, I mean, the tears were just coming down from my face because I was thinking of people. I was thinking of these youth. 
that, 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 I, that I, I would be teaching a Bible study to. And how, how could I just have thought simply by coming out with a study that my job was done? Where was that laboring in love? Where was that, you know, chapter 1 verse 12 talks about, you know, these people, they are complacent. They think that God will not do anything good or anything evil. No, but, but as God's people, we must not think that way. We must not be complacent. We must believe that God will do something good, that God will answer prayer as leaders to lead because we love to so trust in God that we will persevere in prayer for these individual people because out of love, we do not want to see in a few years' time driving and seeing any one of them and having them say, Oh, I've left the church. Now, leaders, we must lead because we love God and we love the people God has entrusted to us. God continues his condemnation. In verse 6, he says, I have destroyed nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I've left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste. They are deserted and empty. Now, why has God done this? He's done this for many reasons. But verse 7 tells us a specific reason why he's done it. He says, Of Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge will not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. You see, the reason why God has judged has destroyed nations that have gone against him. It is that he was hoping that Jerusalem, his own city, his own people, would see God's judgment coming on those pagan nations and learn that God is serious about sin, that God is serious when he threatens judgment. But not only pagan nations, because to the south of Jerusalem, to, sorry, to the north of Jerusalem, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, in the book of Amos, we already saw God threatening judgment against her and how in 722 BC, the Assyrian army came and laid waste to the nation of Israel. And so, for Jerusalem, looking at their, their brothers up north, how the word of the prophets had come true, and still they had not learned. Still they do not learn and hear Zephaniah's message. And uh, in Zephaniah's prophecy, prophesying against Nineveh, now at that time, Nineveh was like the, you know, the, the, the most glorious city uh, in the world, in the known world. It's a bit like, um, you know, North Korea. You think about North Korea now and you, you think, you know, the, the regime, when will it ever come to an end? And for the people then, they think of Nineveh, they're like, you know, they, they, they can't imagine a, a, a capital city as great, as glorious as Nineveh coming to an end. But do you know, it was about 10 years, just 10 years after Zephaniah's prophecy, that the unthinkable, the unimaginable happened. Nineveh fell. And all this, you know, Jerusalem, God's people, they, they, they witnessed, and yet God's word against them is, they did not learn. Right, end of verse 7, but they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. 
And so God says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. So God cares. God cares about whether the nations are walking aright. God cares about whether His people are conforming to His laws. God cares. God cares so much that He will bring judgment against all those who do not listen. You see, because the opposite of caring is not hate. The opposite of caring is not judgment. The opposite of caring is indifference. If you, if you are indifferent, then it shows that you, you have no love, you don't care. But God cares. He cares so much that He will bring judgment on all those who are going against Him. So condemnation. God cares. But in verse 9, there's a, a sudden change. And here we come to the second point of purity. Verse 9, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder. Now out of this fire, it seems that will, God, God's intent is not just to consume the whole world totally, but His intention is also to purify a people for Himself. But not just a people from his own nation, because you see from verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. Now, what is Cush? Uh, if you remember, uh, in Zephaniah 1, we said Cush was Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia was then the boundary of the known world. I mean, they just did not know what was beyond Cush, was beyond Ethiopia. But so God here says, yes, on that day, there will be judgment, but on that day, there will also be a purifying. That, that, that people from beyond Cush, God will gather the nations, God will gather His people, His worshippers, and they will bring Him offerings. They will come calling on Him with purified lips. Now, because of this purifying that God will do, verse 12, what will happen? I will leave within you the meek and humble. It will just be the meek and humble left. The, the meek, uh, those who are humble before the Lord. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. Verse 13, they will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. So God's purifying work will lead to all this. A remnant of people that are pure, pure lips not do any wrong, trusting in Him, pure, uh, meek and humble before Him. But why lips? I mean, I, if, if, if we were writing the book of Zephaniah, we, we might have said, you know, then I will purify their hearts. You know, I mean, that's, that's a more uh, common and acceptable metaphor for us. But why lips? Now, when I first read this, I immediately thought of, Isaiah chapter 6. So, uh, let me turn to Isaiah chapter 6, and you can turn there if you like. Now, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is seeing a vision of the Lord. And before 
before the Lord, there are these high angels, right, with six wings. And, and with two wings, they are covering their faces, two wings, they are covering their feet. Why? Because they, even the high angels cannot look at the Lord. And, and, the, and the feet, covering the feet, because the feet are the, you know, the disrespectful part. So covering the feet. And then the other two wings, they fly, and they are saying, Holy, holy, holy. Now in the Hebrew language, if you want to make it a superlative, you know, if you want to say, ah, yeah, this is the best goal, in the Hebrew it's just written, Gold, gold. Ah, then it's understood, oh, this is the most splendid goal. But only here, only this adjective is said three times. Just to emphasize the ultimate holiness of this being that, that, that Isaiah is seeing. Holy, holy, holy. And so Isaiah, you know, seeing the angels, seeing the, the majestic vision of this God who is holy, 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 he says, Verse 5, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then what happens? What happens is familiar to us. One of the angels flies to him with a live coal. You know, so you know, maybe there's still a bit of fire. It's a live coal, it's still hot. Which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. And then he says, Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So somehow, you know, the, the, the purifying of the lips means that the guilt is taken away. The sin, Isaiah's sin is atoned for. So this purifying of lips somehow signifies the, the washing away of guilt, the, the forgiveness of sins. But what is happening when the angel touches Isaiah's lips with the coal? Now, I, I had always thought that it's something like, you know, purification by fire. You know, the coal is hot and then, you know, purified by fire. Okay, but that's not actually what's happening here. Because the coal comes from the altar. And the coal represents the fire in the altar. The fire in the altar that has just consumed a substitutionary sacrifice. Because that was what happened on the altar. People put an animal in their place on the altar for the, for the fire, God's anger, His holiness, His wrath to consume the animal instead of the worshipper. And so the coal represents the, the holiness of God that has spent itself and is therefore satisfied because it has consumed a substitutionary sacrifice and it's touched the lips. You know, saying, yes, that sacrifice has stood in place of you. And so now, you know, you benefit from the sacrifice that has been consumed. So that's what's happening. But even more amazing is when we come to John chapter 12, and in John chapter 12, it's written, quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. Okay, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I will hear them. So quoting Isaiah 6, and then John, the apostle, saying in verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So here is, 
John the Apostle's commentary on Isaiah chapter 6, saying that when Isaiah the prophet back, all the way back in the 8th century, when he saw this vision of God, you know, the smoke and then the rope filling the whole temple and everything, John is saying what Isaiah saw was Jesus. And what's amazing about that is because all these is, is just pointing ahead to Jesus. You know, in, in the picture of Isaiah 6, is, is Jesus, you know, standing over the altar and then this, this substitutionary sacrifice that has, you know, taken away the, the sins of Isaiah. But it's actually all pointing ahead to, to Jesus himself being that substitutionary sacrifice. That, 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 that vision of this great and holy, mighty being. Is this being? Is this holy, holy, holy one? Is this, is this majestic one that must go to the altar, as it were? Sacrifice himself so that our guilt, our sins can be taken away. This is how God achieves this purity. This is how God achieves this, this purifying of the remnant, this, this purifying of the worshippers that He's calling from all the way beyond Kush to even China, Singapore. All these people coming to Him, they are purified by this great and majestic being Himself going to the altar, being consumed by the fire of God's holy wrath. That is what has taken away our sin. That is what has brought us forgiveness. And the right response to all this, Zephaniah tells us, verse 14, Sing! Sing, daughter Zion! Shout aloud, Israel! Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. Now the, the Hebrew word here for sing means to sing <laughs> out loud, you know, with melody, you know, according to some tune, some lyrics. Sing, you know, salvation belongs to our God. Sing, oh glory, power, honor are his, you know, to the Lamb that's on the throne. Sing, be glad, rejoice with all your heart. Because how much does God care? Well, in this last section, He shows that He cares a lot. Because He's given us great reason to be rejoicing. Because of Christ, verse 15, the Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. Now I want to say that, you know, perhaps the singing that we've had, you know, this morning, be on the weak side, huh? I think we can do better, right? And, and, and a way to do better is not just to, you know, say, okay, 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 I'm, I'm just going to sing louder, I'm going to practice my singing. No, no, you know, what has led to this rejoicing? You know, it's, it's the understanding of what God has done. And so we, we prepare our hearts to sing together with God's people, to, to sing to God by first preparing in our hearts, thinking through once again how good how gracious this God has been to us. And then we will sing. Then we have something to sing for. I mean like, like when Arsenal 
wins against Chelsea tonight. You know, I mean, there'll be so many pot-bellied, you know, gruff-looking men. They'll be singing! They'll be singing! I mean, if they, if they can sing over one silly football match, what about God's people who, who have, you know, now, now enjoyed all these benefits of Christ's saving work? Don't we have more things to sing and shout a lot for? Think about that. But even more, think about this picture that we're going to see here. Because we are not going to be the only ones rejoicing on that day. Now, I mean, when, when you think about salvation, you know, what comes to your mind? You know, maybe some of us think about, okay, you know, God, He's this really good God, you know, He's this loving God, and He's done everything to save us, and okay, now we are saved, now we're His people, He goes, okay, you know, He goes, yep, you know, you know, pat himself on the back. Glory to me. I did a good job. Okay, you know, I, I did what I needed to do. This was what had to be done. And I'm, you know, he's satisfied. You know, we, 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 can, we can think about it in that impassive way. But Zephaniah offers us a really unique picture of salvation. There's, there's no other passage in the Bible that's like it. Because you see what it says here, verse 17. The Lord your God is with you the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I mean, there's, there's no other verse in the Bible that's like it. I mean, the closest that comes to this is Isaiah 62, verse 5, which says, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And I can just imagine Enoch, you know, rejoicing over Dorothy right now. Right, his new bride. And I mean, he's probably not singing. You know, I mean, they, they, they both of them, they like to sing, but, you know, I mean, probably Enoch is not standing over Dorothy and, you know, he's probably not doing that. But, you know, but, but he's rejoicing. And that's, that's a picture in Isaiah 62. But in Zephaniah 3, 17, it's a picture of God singing singing over the people that he has redeemed, people that he has brought by the work of Christ back to himself. Now, if you look at the, the sermon title, I, I've entitled to this sermon, My Gift is My Song. Now, anybody know where that comes from? Anyone? You know, just out of interest. Anyone? You know, you read the title, ah, that's where it comes from. Anyone? Okay, it comes from, it comes from a song in a movie that Maria and I watched, I think we watched up to three times uh, while we were waiting for Elliot to be born. <laughs> so this was back in 2004, you know. Maria's about to pop and we are in Perth and my in-laws are on a holiday, you know, hoping to come back in time for the birth. And we're just, you know, hanging around waiting for the baby to come out and my sister has a copy of Mulan Rouge. And so we just watch it, right? So we just watch it. And it turns out to be quite enjoyable movie. You know, the songs, some of the songs are quite nice. And one of the songs is this one, you know, uh, my song. You know, my gift is my song. And so, you know, watching it three times already, after Elliot was born, you know, as babies do, they will wake up in the middle of the night, and then I will carry him. And this is the song that I will sing. You know, my gift is my song. And you can tell everybody, 
that this is your song. It may be quite simple, but now that it's done, I hope you don't mind. I hope you don't mind that I put down in words how wonderful life is. Now you're in the world. Because that was exactly how I felt. Now, some of you know I'm not a great singer. You know, last week when I was leading service, you know, I, I, had, to, I had to do the, the three-four amen, so I had to, amen, amen. No, so here, it sounds alright because all of you are singing it. But in the cry room, when it's just my voice, people were like, you know, what, what was that? What was that, right? Because I'm tone deaf. You know, God, God only gave me a pretty face. You know, to keep me humble, He didn't give me a, a good singing voice. But I am going to hazard a guess that God is not tone deaf. That, I mean, and when it says here that He's going to sing, it's not just a, a, you know, a metaphorical picture. It's not just, you know, poetic license. Because we believe, right, that God speaks. Right? We, we have God speaks. He's a speaking God. He has spoken. He has spoken to the prophets uh, in many and various ways. God is a God who speaks. And when He first spoke, the whole universe was formed. What's going to happen when He breaks out in song? It's going to be amazing. Can you, can you even begin to imagine what that's going to be like? I mean, some of us queue up for hours just to be at a concert to hear some people sing. You know, you PTX ladies, I know who you are, right? Um, but, but here, we're not just spectators hearing the greatest singer sing. Zephaniah is telling us we are going to be in the centre He's going to be singing over us, delighting over us with song. This is how much this great being loves us. This is a picture of, 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 of salvation, of the consummation that each and every one of us who believe in the name of Jesus, that's where we are headed. What is God going to sing? What, what will be the lyrics? I don't know. But I'm sure, you know, Words from Ephesians chapter 1 will not be far off. I mean, imagine God singing, you know, I am the God that has blessed you in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I am the one that has chosen you in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in my sight. In love, I have predestined you for adoption to sonship. And that is what you are. You are my sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. And all this in accordance with my pleasure and will. God singing over us, you are mine. You are mine. And I have loved you with an everlasting love. And, and, and us singing back to Him. Yes, you, you, are, you are ours. We are your people. You are our God. And, and in this singing going on for eternity, it's God rejoicing and delighting over us. So does God care? God more than cares. God has loved you with an everlasting love. 
And so let me ask, if you were asked to imagine what comes to God's mind when He thinks of you, you know, what, what, what would your answer have been? You know, some of, some of us, you know, if, if it's a particularly bad day at the office, our answer to that would be, oh, God must be so disappointed in me. Or if some of us who are affected by the, the values and influences of the world, you know, you know, where we're not the right shape, we're not the right weight, we're not the right height, we look in the mirror and, and, and we say, you know, God must, you know, look away a bit when He thinks of me. But, but that's what the world says. That's, that's the lies the devil is giving you. Instead, we need to meditate, we need to see what Zephaniah 3.17 is saying. That this is a God who has loved him. He doesn't condone your sin. Obviously, you know, look at chapters 1, 2, and 3. He's doing something about our sin. In Christ, He has purified us and taken away our sin. And do you know what, what grasping more clearly, more deeply, this, this everlasting love of God will do? You know, I know for me, the moments in my Christian life when, I, when I've come to a deeper realization of His love, you know, sin just loses its allure. I mean, it, it, you know, it, 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 just, it just doesn't entice. I don't think I'm perfect, but, you know, I'm just saying the moments when I've grasped deeply and I really experienced a fresh God's everlasting love of me, sinner, frail, and all the mistakes I've made, and yet He loves me with this everlasting love. And I just, I just, I just walk through the day and, and, and the idols, you know, the, the, the sin... Just not attractive. I just want to focus on this God. I just want to focus on this great being who, who, who so loves me. I just want to live for Him. I just want to love Him back. And so as God's people, we need to, we need to see this truth. We need to meditate on it. We need to, we need to treasure this to, to, to bring it into the deep recesses of our hearts so that it changes us, so that we, our souls are filled with an eager expectation of this day when we experience the fullness of His joy, of His delight over us. May God help us to do so. Amen.